0: Corporate Unplugged opens the door to a world of people transforming business. They share their dreams, their experiences, and what they would never give up. I'm so glad to have Mark Sullivan here with me from Montana. Welcome to my podcast, Mark.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: And just as a short intro of uh, of you, Mark Sullivan is the uh, acclaimed author of 18 novels, including the number one New York Times bestselling private series, which he writes with James Patterson. Uh, and Mark has received numerous awards for his writing. He grew up in Massachusetts. Uh, he has a BA in English. He has worked also as a volunteer in the Peace Corps in Niger, West Africa. And when he came back to the US, he graduated from the Middle School of Journalism at Northwestern University and began a career in investigative journalism. He's an avid skier, adventurer, and also lives in Bozeman, Montana. So, Mark, this is really a very, very short intro. I mean, the list goes on and on in terms of the number of your books and and everything you've done and especially experienced in life so far. But uh, when I went into your website and just uh, read a little bit, I found this quote where it's written, the difficult takes time and the impossible just takes a little longer by Art Burke. Why did you put that quote up there? Why is it important to you?
1: Well, Art Berg is a man who was paralyzed uh, in an accident from the waist down. And he decided he was going to run an ultra marathon on his hands. And he did. And then he ran something like 300 miles on his hands through the desert just to show it was possible. And I was so inspired by that, that here's a man who could have collapsed into himself after he was paralyzed. And instead, he created a bigger vision for himself, you know, a more radical vision for himself. I mean, running on your hands through the desert is just incredible. And I was inspired by that. And it actually helped me when I was working on my latest novel, Beneath the Scarlet Sky, which took me 10 years to research and write. And that was completely different than anything I've ever done in my life. And seeing that Berg could run through the desert on his hands inspired me continually during that process. Amazing. I read
0: somewhere that you are attracted to stories where characters are really pushed to their limits. Why is that?
1: You know, I'm interested in people and how they conduct themselves at the extremes. I'm not so much interested in how people conduct themselves on a day-to-day basis. It's usually in times of extremes that the depth of people's character, who they really are, shows. And that's what I'm always interested in, seeing who people really are and what they're capable of. And that usually reveals itself under stress.
0: Yeah that's that's really true and i've seen it very much in this uh, let's say corporate business world also when people become very successful get a lot of power that's also very revealing uh, what comes out i agree with that at least at the beginning then they learn and they get some distance but at the beginning it's it's really visible but why why did you write this book and and who is this book for
1: i wrote the book because hearing the story the first time really changed my life. It was probably the, the last weekend in February of 2006 when I had reached the lowest point of my life. My little brother, who was also my best friend, drank himself to death. I had written a novel that I loved, but it tanked in the United States. And I was involved in a long standing business dispute that took me to the point of personal bankruptcy. And I realized driving on a snowy Montana highway that I was worth more dead than alive. And I considered driving into a bridge abutment so my wife and kids could collect on my life insurance. I didn't do it, but I was as rattled as I've ever been in my entire life. And I pulled into a Costco parking lot. It's a store here in the States. And I put my head on the steering wheel and I begged God in the universe for a story, one that would give me purpose and meaning. And three hours later, my wife, who was sick with the stomach flu, forces me to go to a dinner party that I had no interest in going to. And a perfect stranger there started telling me the story of Pinocchio. Six weeks later, I get on a plane. I fly to Italy and I spend three weeks with him as he tells me the story of the last his last two years in World War II. And his perspective on life and life's tragedies completely changed my perspective. And I left Italy vowing to tell the story to as many people as possible. And that became a crazier idea when I decided I was going to tell the story to a billion people. It sounded completely far-fetched, but Today is roughly thirteen years after I started working on that book. Pino's story has reached tens of millions of readers and listeners, and I have no doubt that after the television miniseries comes out, the story and its message about the power of faith and love will reach a billion people.
0: Well. Wow. Congratulations on that um, achievement really it's amazing what life can do when when uh, the as, as they say the de- destiny changes
1: yes mm.
0: but you also have to be open for it and then receive it right
1: you do you have to be willing to change you have to be willing to take your life in a radically different direction if it's called for you know before this book i wrote mystery and suspense novels And I was good at it, and I liked doing it, and I'm proud of all of them. But those stories are really written with your head, and Beneath the Scarlet Sky was written with my heart. It was a completely different experience.
0: And is is this the book that has sold the most so far out of your 18 uh, novels?
1: Yes, by far.
0: Yeah. It's Always interesting to see that being confirmed. That when when we manage to uh, drop into our hearts rather than the minds, <laughs> then something magic happens. As of now, what will you write about? How does this change the coming steps for you as a writer?
1: Well, you know the again the story of Pino Lella and writing the story really transformed me because it taught me the power of a story to change people's lives. And I decided during the story, during the writing of the story and the research, that this was the most fulfilling thing I'd ever done. And I decided to narrow my focus in the stories that I would tell in the future. And so the stories I look for are stories that ideally move inspire and transform readers that's the theme i'm looking for and so that's the criteria that i use to decide which stories to tell next do do you already now have some ideas of what it will be or oh i'm about a third of the way into the next book which is also based on another incredible untold story of world war ii with similar themes about the power of faith and love and family, despite the worst conditions you can imagine. Hmm.
0: So you have a great use of your investigative journalism um, uh, muscle, I guess, from your previous experiences, right?
1: That's true. I mean, being an investigative reporter taught me how to research and how to spend time with people and get them to open up to me. And that has been invaluable. It is a different set of skills than being a pure fiction writer. And I think the combination of the two is what makes the book special.
0: Mm. And what is it that makes people open up?
1: I think it's when you open up your heart. There's a a line in Beneath the Scarlet Sky that uh, when we open up, when we reveal our scars, we're made fallible, and human, and whole. And so I usually try to talk to people and explain some of my scars and what I've gone through. And through that opening of my heart, they usually begin to open their heart. What, what would you say
0: is actually your, your passion, things that you are really willing to even suffer for if it's needed?
1: Well, stories like this, I'm willing to suffer for it. I spent 10 years working on this story. Now, I wrote seven or eight books during that time, but it was the passion that I had for the story, my conviction that it would change people, that I was willing to go through 10 years of work to do it. So there's my passion, telling stories that move, inspire, and ideally transform my readers.
0: And Pinolella is he um, still living here in in Italy
1: or Yes 93 years old Oh wow pretty amazing since he uh crashed on his mountain bike last week but bounced off the cobblestones got right back up and he's doing fine <laughs> Okay
0: promise to tell me if you if you're going to be visiting him uh, very soon maybe we can go there together
1: <laughs> Yeah for sure <laughs>
0: That would be wonderful. So you've seen a lot from this uh, northern part of Italy while you were with him, or did you stay at his place in uh, Maggiore, Lago
1: Maggiore? I stayed at his house, but we traveled all over. And I've been there five times now, so. Wow. Yeah. I love northern Italy. I think it's fantastic.
0: Mm -hmm. (laughs) Great. And what would you say are the transformational points in your life that have influenced you uh, the most so far? I mean, obviously, you mentioned a few already, but
1: Sure. The first big one was I was in second grade and I got in a fist fight in the hallway. And this six foot tall Catholic nun picked me up and hung me on a coat hanger and told me that my punishment for getting in a fight was that I had to go home and enter the grades one through eight short story writing contest. I had no idea what she was talking about, but I was petrified of her because not only was she a six foot tall nun, um, she was my mother's best friend. So I figured I was going home to a lot of punishment. But when I got there, my mother had no idea. I went upstairs to my room, told her I had to write something. I sat down. I had no idea what to write about. And about 30 minutes later, a rabbit went flying through my backyard and I saw it out the window followed moments later by a dog chasing it and so I decided to write about that and I won (laughs) and I had to read it in front of the whole school and everybody cheered and my life was started as a writer in the 10th grade I had an English teacher a brilliant woman named Estelle Stahl who had graduated from the Radcliffe writing program. And she took me aside in my sophomore year of high school and told me I could be a professional writer. And uh, that really inspired me and focused me. Being an investigative reporter taught me a lot, was transformative because it showed me that a story could illuminate dark secrets and change things for the better. I thrived on that for years until I started listening to this voice that said, you're supposed to be a novelist. And about that same time, the newspaper I was working for, the San Diego Tribune, was going to merge with the morning newspaper, the San Diego Union. And about 170 journalists were going to lose their jobs. So it was a very toxic time to be working. But I tried to stay focused, despite the fact that my wife and I just had our first son. He was about seven months old. And one night uh, he had the croup and my wife had gone to bed and I was walking him up and down. And this television infomercial came on with this guy buzzing around in a helicopter and he jumps out in front of a castle in Del Mar, California, which is part of San Diego County. And he says, I'm Tony Robbins and I can change your life. And I. I remember distinctly saying, I don't know who you are, but you're a charlatan and I'm going to investigate you. I was always totally fair about things. So I had the newspaper buy what was his very first product, which was called 30 Days to Personal Power. And I figured I'd listen to one night and that would be it. I would know it was ridiculous. Instead, my wife and I listened to 30 straight nights. And on the 31st day, I quit my job to become a novelist.
0: Wow. Wow, that's a transformation. Yeah. Already back then, and he's still doing fantastic work, Tony Robbins. But that was one of his first programs, right?
1: Yes. And he's become a friend of mine, which is also amazing.
0: I'm not your guru. I I saw that uh, documentary, you could say, right? The documentary film, recently.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah.
0: Fantastic person, really. But what about, um, you were mentioning you heard that voice that was saying you were supposed to be novelist uh, while you were re- working with investigative journalism and so on. What voice is that?
1: Yeah, you know, This is the voice that started when I was seven years old, when I wrote fiction. And almost all writers would agree that the biggest challenge is long-form narrative, especially fiction. Um, fiction can do something that nonfiction can't. It can make the story come alive. And that's what I was really interested in, was making stories come alive on the page. And that was really behind the voice, that you were born to write books, and that's what you really need to be doing.
0: Mm. And how much was this conviction about your ability to write uh, was kind of discovered through these uh, women, the two first women you mentioned in your transmissional points? And how much was it something that you already knew and they just confirmed?
1: The first one I can't tell you because there I my mother taught me to learn to read when I was four, and we didn't have a television so books were always a critical part of my life as a child, but I had no set out goal to be a writer before the nun told me to Sister Mary Joseph, I don't know if where she came up with this or why, but she did and it started me and Mrs. Stahl, I think, confirmed something that I had begun to believe that I was supposed to be a writer. And when somebody of her caliber and talent says that you could do it, it makes you believe you actually can. And so the voice becomes stronger. And there were times where I tried to convince myself that it was a crazy thing that I would never get it done. But again, going back to that 30 days where I did all the exercises Robbins recommended, I came to believe that, you know, you can fail at staying safe as easily as you can fail at taking risks. And I decided to take the risk to become a novelist. And to my great delight, it's worked.
0: Fantastic. And and for people who are listening to this and not, at all have ever been in a situation of writing something as a book. What is the, the beauty and the challenge of being a writer?
1: Well, the beauty of it is that if you do it right, you participate in people's lives across the world. I have people read books, my books in India, Russia, Japan, China, and I get letters from them. And that is the most beautiful and rewarding part that they have bought into my vision of the world and experienced it and loved it. The challenge, of course, is you, for me especially, is because I'm not physically suited to be a writer. I am very active. I like being active. I like moving around. uh, And that doesn't work very well being a writer. So what I try to do is burn off that energy, that movement energy early so that when I sit down, it's out of me. And that has been the challenge for me probably my entire career. <laughs> so you're a very sporty guy. I like climbing and skiing and fishing and hunting and all of the above.
0: But now you mentioned that people in India and everywhere is reading and so on and they kind of align with your with your vision. What is that vision?
1: The vision was of the story. I'm I'm talking mostly about Beneath a Scarlet Sky. And the way I told the story and the way I emphasized the story, I was put in a situation where I had set out to write the story originally as pure nonfiction. And I discovered after about five years that that wasn't going to work, that there were certain parts of the story that I was never going to get. And I was at a party in New York, a publishing party, and had a conversation with a woman who is an agent, not my agent, but a person I've known for years. This was probably eight years ago now. I expressed my frustration at being able to tell the story in the way that I wanted to. And she said, you know, Mark." If this story had come to you 25 years ago when you were an investigative reporter, I would say, well, just keep going. There's nothing you can do. You're either going to get it or not. But the story did not come to an investigative reporter. The story came to a novelist. And I think you should tell the story as a novel because novels bring it to life. And I sort of struggled with that for a while. And then once I understood what she was talking about, I surrendered to it. 100%. 100%. And my guide as I was writing the story was what is the emotional arc of the story that I heard the first time? And that was what I used to make most of the big decisions in the book. Was it going to take the reader on the same emotional journey that I went on? And I think that's what people have responded to.
0: Wow. Well, I have started to read it just last week, but uh, I'll definitely uh, get in touch with you after and, and tell you uh, how I responded. That will be fun. But in terms of companies, because a lot of people are working for companies, organizations, and so on, and there's you know statistics saying that sixty-seven percent of people are you know not motivated and not really into their job and so on, and that's a really a, a kind of a depressing fact when you think about it, because people are spending eight, ten hours a day on that uh, job, right? So I'm thinking from a very big perspective, you know what what do you think is um, kind of the purpose of of companies and and is there a you could say long-term formula for any company out there that you would assume would work better than the ones we have now?
1: I'll speak for myself and try to extrapolate it out. But my long-term formula for myself has been habit-based and adventure-based. I meditate every morning for 24 minutes. I express gratitude for my life. I exercise for an hour. I eat well. I show up for work ready. Now, I'm in a different situation that I show up to work passionate about what I do. My work is play and my play is work. And I don't see a difference in them. And so when I sit down, it's not that I have to do this. I get to do it, which is extraordinary that this dream that I had when I was seven years old has become my reality. And I tell people again that you can fail at the safe as easy as you can fail as at the risky. So I believe that people like companies should follow their hearts. They should try to do what's best for not only society, their consumers, what have you, but also for their employees. If you have employees who show up motivated and passionate about what they do, I think the company can't help but succeed. You know, so what are my habits? Again, I write, four to six hours every day, unless I'm off on an adventure, in which case I rarely write. So I might go 22 to 60 days in a row writing and then take two weeks off and go to the Arctic Circle, for example, or go to do research somewhere I've never been before. So it's this balance between being disciplined enough to execute your vision as well as being flexible enough to allow adventure into your life on a regular basis. And I think all great companies do that. They have a culture that creates passion among its employees, a sense of vision, a sense of shared vision. And yet they're also flexible enough to let people try to find new ways to do things, which is a form of adventure my definition of adventure is when you take off and you have no idea how it's going to work out (laughs) and you have to be comfortable doing that.
0: And also in terms of leaders and leadership and whatever, or whoever you define as leaders, but also that is about really going to the edge. I mean, if you are a leader, you should actually be comfortable by going to places where or to the edges where nobody has been yet and lead an organization there.
1: Most definitely. I think leaders should lead from the front, not behind. I think leaders should take control and lead people under them in a direction they may not know they want to go in. So I've always been of that belief that leaders of any sort have to go to the front. They can't be hanging around and second-guessing the people work for them. That just doesn't work.
0: But if you would have all doors open and all resources available to you at this very moment, what would be the first thing you would go innovate
1: or change? I would change the way children are taught in schools in America. I was educated at a time when the ability to remember facts and figures or to find them in books was critical. Today, the world's facts, figures, and books are available at our fingertips or thumbs, I guess. But the real skills that should be taught are How to research critically, how to analyze what you've researched critically, how to use logic to forge a coherent, supportable argument from that research and analysis, and then the ability to write it down. I believe that he or she who can research well, analyze well, speak well, argue well, and write well rule in life and in corporations. I think everyone should learn these skills, whether they're in STEM or the arts. That's what I would change.
0: And how much is the education already, do you think, going in that
1: direction? Not enough. Not enough. Hmm. Not enough. I mean, again, if you're teaching people that we have to memorize facts, it's stupid. What we really have to do is find the right facts and learn how to analyze them to create a new vision. I went to college at Hamilton College in upstate New York, a school that was known for writing and speaking and thinking. Those are the skills they taught. And people that I went to school with have gone on to lead huge corporations in America, General Electric, Procter & Gamble. And when they're asked, why do you think you rose to that level of leadership, they always point back to their ability to think well, speak well, and write well. Because if you can write well and argue on paper, you win.
0: Yeah, and then you combine that with, as you say, this kind of um, heart-minded source, so to say, in combination is is then uh, unbeatable.
1: I believe that's right.
0: But, Mark, if you like, would go back, let's say, 15 or more years ago and so on and, and give yourself an advice back then, what would it be?
1: Be patient. Don't stop fighting for the kinds of stories you were born to tell. And all the events, positive and negative, in your life were in preparation for a story you will hear in about two years at the lowest point of your life. That's what you're being prepared to do.
0: And what would you say as as an advice to people who feel that they don't really know? I mean, even if they're 40, 50 or whatever, they still don't know what is the purpose with, with me, with what what I'm doing here. What's the best question to ask oneself?
1: What does your heart tell you? You know. Everybody knows. It's whether or not they're going to be able to listen and turn off the... Chattering in their mind that says you can't do this. You can't be a writer. You can't be a leader. You can't run a company. Those kinds of conversations everybody has. It's the person who is willing to listen in a different direction to a different form of intellect who usually find their power and purpose in life.
0: And all the people that you know that have, let's say, reached, uh, I don't want to say powerful situations or positions, but rather feel that they're power-filled, do they have all of that in common, that they really know why they do things? And so the energy comes from a deeper level.
1: Well, I would hope so, but I don't think that's true. Uh, Unfortunately, there are uh, many stories about people who are billionaires, who are completely miserable. And so being wealthy and powerful does not give you happiness. What gives you happiness is having a purpose and adding value to people's lives and making the world a better place. Those are the kinds of purposes that inherently bring fulfillment and happiness.
0: Yeah, for sure. And I see more and more of, of company leaders and leaders in general that are uh, realizing that. Is, the only thing is that still we have this, you know, shareholder value kind of religion out there that is kind of driving a certain short term behavior and thinking. but gradually that is changing as, as well, because everybody understands that at the end, if you work for an ecosystem for a 360 degree perspective as a company or then, then you will also get the great results and the great profits and all that.
1: I think you're absolutely right. One of the more instructive things is when you realize, you know what, you're going to die. Ultimately, no one will care about your stock price when you go. What they'll care about is who you were as a person, what you stood for, how you loved, and the depth of your character and conviction. If you focus on these things as the navigational tools in your life, the accolades and personal abundance that you desire I think, will come as proof of the power of the values you followed.
0: Mm, Exactly. And if you would say, what is the most important thing for companies to focus on right now, if there is like one common denominator for all of them, what would that be?
1: Solve problems, add value to people's lives. The people you work with are your most important asset. Give them a piece of the company. Don't stick up the environment while you do it and see yourselves as vessels of good. Great. Yeah.
0: That really sums up what I typically call humanity plus uh, companies. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Fantastic. And what do you think is that the world needs most at this very time?
1: A thicker skin. Everyone seems offended by everyone and everything. Everyone's a victim of some outrage. Everyone's had a tragedy. Their sure is worse than any other. And I say, guess what? Get over it. If people spent as much time trying to fix a problem as bitching about it, we'd be a whole lot better off. You know, I'll paraphrase my friend and my personal coach, a guy named Michael Needy, who's brilliant. He'll tell you that if we can learn to accept the harms done to us, we'll know freedom. And if we can learn to forgive the harms done to us by those who harmed us, we and they will know the true nature of love. They may not accept it but they will know it. And if you can learn to be grateful for the harm that's done to you, because they're the source of your strength, then we'll know the hand of the divine and the long arc of our lives.
0: Yeah, so true. Wow, Mark, uh, it's amazing, uh, beautiful to, to talk to you. And um, I mean, we could go on forever and ever, but I know that we have a limited time. But uh, just out of curiosity, how was it to be on the podcast?
1: You don't get to talk about these things much, uh, you know. You're usually talking about specifics about writing and stuff, and these are issues I'm interested in. So I really appreciate you having me.
0: Great. Do Do you think that um, these kind of questions uh, are are key to this business corporate world uh, to reflect upon?
1: I do. Again, you can focus on your short term stock value or you can focus on the long term. My dad was involved in the early days of venture capital, and he believed that the minimum for a company was seven years that he wanted to be involved, a minimum. He was not interested in short hits and making money in the short term. He was more interested in seeing stable sustainable companies being built. And that is always a focus on the long term, not the short term.
0: Fantastic. So he was really ahead of his time.
1: He was, but that was the way he was taught at Harvard. He went to Harvard Business School. There was a guy named General Doriot, who was French. He had been a general in the French military. And he's really regarded as the father of venture capital. And He taught my dad this. And my dad basically followed that philosophy his entire career is he still around your dad yeah
0: he's still alive great wonderful okay uh, mark uh, i'm so grateful for this uh, time and uh, i really want to thank you from the bottom of my heart for sharing everything and uh, taking the time and for people who want to find out more about you and your books of course where should they head
1: www.marksullivanbooks.com, and it's the same thing on Facebook. It's Mark Sullivan Books. I we update on Facebook all the time about where I'll be if I'm appearing, speaking, reading. For the most part, I'm in my little cabin in Big Sky writing. Mm-hmm.
0: Okay, and just out of curiosity, if you, if anybody wants to contact you about speaking, uh, are you doing it also in Europe? Or are you mainly staying in the US or?
1: I'll speak anywhere as long as I think it's worthwhile and they think it's worthwhile having me.
0: Okay. Great. Good to know. Uh, and also uh, everyone will find links and uh, show notes on uh, corporateunplug.com/podcast and remember to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes Spotify and Acast and share this episode with your network and friends for impact uh, share it with people you know would benefit from hearing what mark had to say thanks for listening and until next time live with purpose and remember to unplug ciao mark
1: ciao